Hello, I'm Rachel Kahn, and on the Ark today, the Celtic Revival. Celtic music, books, artwork, jewelry, it's a mini-industry, but it's also a spiritual movement. But what has it got to do with the Celtic languages spoken by the people of Brittany, Wales, Cornwall, Scotland, Ireland, and Nova Scotia and Canada and Patagonia in Argentina? Not enough, says Marcus Tanner in his recent book, The Last of the Celts. He mourns the rapid loss of the Gaelic language since the 19th century and the rise of a Celticism, which he suspects is less than what it purports to be. It's happening all over the English-speaking world. It's not an English phenomenon, it's an English-speaking phenomenon, and you can even see it in France. It's, I think, bound up with a search for an identity. People feel they don't have an identity, or they feel they have a, a, a homogenized white identity that's not attractive and appealing. The institutional churches in which many people have worshipped they're also seen as lacking this uh, strong cultural identity. And I think Celtic spirituality offers people a less orthodox way of reaching out for otherness, for God or for some spiritual mm. kind of meaning in their lives. And I, I'd say you should see it in, in, the, in the same context as the way people are reaching out for alternative medicine. It's not that they're giving up with the orthodox treatments, you know, and you could call the churches the orthodox treatments, but they want something complementary. Well, what about Ireland? Could the rise in Celtic spirituality be an answer to the Catholic and the Protestant churches that have failed to find a resolution to their conflict? Is it a kind of alternative spirituality? Well, well that's a very interesting point, and I think it's, uh, yes, it's very interesting that both Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, one of the reasons why churchmen are so interested in this um, the Celtic saints and the Celtic church and trying to get back to what it was all about is because, of course, it, it reaches back beyond a time when these divisions sprung up and divided people so badly. And yes, I think it reflects a kind of disappointment with the way Orthodox Protestantism and Catholicism have failed really to, to come together in any meaningful way or bring people together. So when people join the uh, Celtic spiritual quest, they're able to come together on issues that predate any of the kind of um, stuff that happened at the Reformation and after that, and which left people feeling divided and embittered. Well, there's a kind of irony there, because on the one hand, there is a look to the past, but I also get a strong sense from your study that Celtic revivals are kind of vehicles for the aspirations of a group or a generation at that particular moment in time. Well, yes, that's precisely because really we don't know that much about it. So all sorts of things can be attached to Celtic spirituality. One of the fun sides of doing this book was going into the British Library and looking at all the vast list of books which had the word Celtic stuck onto them. And I found books on Celtic sex, Celtic herbs, Celtic cooking, uh, I mean, you name it. It has become a bit of an, a, a vehicle in which, you know, anyone can ride, really. And I think that's one of the reasons why, yes, it's both backward looking, but also in the sense it, it, that's why it's why it's also very popular in America and in California, because that, those are very forward looking societies. But it doesn't really carry much baggage, the word Celtic in itself. And in one of my worries, which I expressed in the book, is that it's become a very devalued word, a, a word empty of any real significance. It's a mm. word that's come to mean alternative and feel-good and uh, not orthodox and not institutional. Yes. 
Well, in your book, you mention several Celtic revivals in history. Tell us who initiated the first Celtic revival. There have been so many of them, but I think you can really take it right back to the, the, the immediate centuries after the、um, conquest of England by the Angles and the Saxons, these Germanic tribes, and almost immediately you have this feeling of nostalgia that a better church existed before the one we have now, and I think that's really the light motif of all the Celtic revivals. There's always this feeling that. If we go back, we find something better and purer. You very soon have these、uh, lives of saints being written, which attributed extraordinary miracles to various Celtic saints, and they were used by people, I think, really for much the same reason that you have Celtic revivals now. It's this sort of search for a, a better world that existed in the past and which we can't recover. Well, it's certainly far more interesting if your saints have such miraculous powers attached to them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Where does King Arthur figure? In the Celtic pantheon of saints, w- was he part of another Celtic revival? Well, absolutely, because of course many people think that oh, it was the Celts that kept alive the idea of Arthur, of the Celtic champion who fought against the Anglo-Saxons and who was then in later centuries becomes a, a sort of mythical figure, and then you have all the legends surrounding him. But in fact, when you look at the history, what's interesting is that it's the conquerors. It's the Anglo-Saxons and it's the Normans who follow the Anglo-Saxons, who become tremendously interested in Arthur, and I think it's because once the Celtic lands of Britain, the Welsh in particular, the Cornish, were vanquished and subdued, once they weren't threatening, they became part of this almost folklore, harmless, something that could be borrowed and used by the new ruling culture. In fact, it was the Normans and the The, the rulers of England who, who propagated the, the extraordinary stories about Arthur, and, and they're the ones who passed it around. And then it went back to places like Wales and was circulated there. So it took a very strange route that the way that the, the way the legend of Arthur circulated round Britain and then all the way through Europe. We know that it was being read in Cyprus in the, in the 13th and 14th century, as well as sort of in France and in England. Perhaps the most unexpected、um, appropriators of the Celtic revival were the reformers, the 16th-century、mm. Protestants. Now, you wouldn't expect them to be too enamoured of druids in robes and monks and so forth, which is the usual image of the Celts. Yes, well, they weren't enamoured of of the druids and the monks, but they were very enamoured of the Celtic Church for similar to the reasons I have just been talking about: the better world that existed before our corrupt world. What they took out of the Celtic Church was a non-hierarchical, non-papal church. It was a very a simple church, and what the reformers were interested in was simplicity of worship and simplicity of doctrine, clearing away what they considered the, the clutter of late medieval、um, Catholic devotion. So they found plenty that interested them in the Celtic Church, and especially, of course, the idea that there was no pope. I guess no discussion of the Celts is complete without mention of Matthew Arnold, the nineteenth-century professor of poetry at Oxford. What did he have to say about the Celts, and why was he so persuasive? Oh, I think he's been immensely important in shaping our modern twentieth and now twenty-first century understanding of the Celts, simply because his essays on the Celts. Put forward this idea that the Celts are dreamers; they are the artists of society. But although his picture of Celts is very attractive, 
the other side of it is that, that, of course, these artists and these dreamers have no constructive part to play in our society. All the serious business of living is to be done by uh, the boring, Teutonic, uh, Germanic peoples. In other words, the, the English, the Welsh and the Scots and the Irish are there to be our muses and um, inspirers, playing their lovely music and, and, and reading their, their beautiful poems. And it was very interesting that although Arnold professed to be such a great admirer of this artistic side to the Celtic nature. Um, he strongly disapproved of people actually speaking Welsh, and he said, you know, the sooner this language disappears as an everyday language, the better. And I think that double-edged attitude towards Celtic revivalism, uh, which Arnold exemplified, survives today. People love the folkloric side of it all. But if you actually go into a shop, in Wales today, and the shopkeepers don't talk to you in English, you'll find you can often be in a confrontational situation and people say, don't you speak English? You know, because that's, that's the real world then. Indeed. Well, was that what was happening in the 1960s with the hippies and the folk song revival? Was that a kind of Celtic revival too? Well, it was, but I think, it, again, it's this Celticism into which anyone reads what they want to read reacting against institutions and orthodoxy. But did it really boost the language? Did it really boost the self-esteem of these cultures? Some of the artists might have done, but I would say as a phenomenon, not really. It seems to be a vehicle then for any political movement. I mean, at that time, the folk song movement was actually a vehicle for anti-war sentiments. Yes, and I think a kind of loose Celtic nationalism has attached itself to it. And, of course, the 60s was the decade when you get modern Celtic nationalism becoming an important force in Britain. The Welsh nationalists and the Scottish nationalists, and even to a smaller extent, you have little nationalist parties in Cornwall and the Isle of Man. Plus, of course, you over the water, you have the much stronger phenomenon of uh, Republican nationalism in Northern Ireland, which has a very strong... Celtic mythology attached to it. So, and that's another phenomenon that's worth investigating in itself. But so, yeah, the 60s did see a sort of revival of that kind of Celtic political nationalism. But again, I wonder whether it's really kept alive in any meaningful way the languages and cultures. Well, in your travels in contemporary Celtic uh, communities, what were the most fascinating examples of Celticism? Did you find authentic expressions of it? I suppose one of the most interesting trips was to Patagonia because the way that the Welsh-speaking Welsh emigrants have kept alive their language at the bottom of Argentina has got to be the most interesting thing I saw in travelling around all those uh, countries for about a year and a half, simply because it's a bizarre geography, climate and everything, and to see the kind of culture that I have seen in the valleys of central Wales lifted and transplanted thousands and thousands of miles away down there into a Spanish-speaking environment. That's got to be the most interesting example of Celtic culture staying alive just about. Absolutely. Well, do any of the churches see Celtic spirituality as a kind of guarantee of their future? They're reaching for it, partly because of the disillusion that there is very present in, certainly in the Anglican Church and in the Catholic Church, I think, in the English-speaking countries at any rate. They have encouraged people to think that, 
yes, if they look back to this older, simpler Celtic style of worship, they can recover a kind of self-confidence which they have lost. That is quite a powerful movement in the churches. And I, and I, I, I think it's a good movement, as long as people don't read too much into this Celtic church, of which we can only know relatively little. So to an extent, it has to be, you know, it's an act of the imagination recovering this, this church, all these, these values. Are you in search of Celtic spirituality for yourself, Marcus Tanner, Welshman? Oh, well, I, <laughs> I have to say that when I went to, um, I think it's a 5th or 6th century ruined monastic community off the southwest coast of Ireland, that was such a powerful, it's called Skellig Michael, it's a sort of rock that just juts out of the sea. And to think that people were worshipping there for eight centuries before the Norman invaders got to Ireland, and that they lived this life of such frugality, living off uh, seabirds, essentially. You, you cannot visit a place like that and not feel impressed by the, the strength of that tradition. And it wasn't necessarily a very soft and gentle one, was it? Not at all. What we do know about Celtic spirituality is that it was pretty tough. And when modern writers uh, assume that the Celtic church was a bit more easygoing about sex, for example, which is one of the common themes you'll see in these books on what people say are Celtic spirituality... In fact, what we know about the Celtic Church is that it was extremely puritanical. And I would say, and I did say in this book, that I thought the real heirs of the Celtic Church were not necessarily the kind of feel-good spiritual gurus who call themselves Celtic, but those very hard-line churches that you'll find in the Gaelic-speaking areas of Scotland and in Welsh-speaking Wales, Methodists and Calvinists. And I think they're probably truer to the spirit of their long, 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 long-ago ancestors than, than some of the people who call themselves Celtic. That might just spark an anti-Celtic revival. <laughs> well, maybe if they went to some of those churches, they wouldn't feel so keen to appropriate the word Celtic. But yeah, they're tough. They're tough places. The real Celts, not the fairies at the bottom of the garden. Marcus Tanner's book is The Last of the Celts, and he was speaking to me from London. Tune in again next week for The Ark with me, Rachel Kahn.